You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, alongside Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you're fresh back from Minneapolis, where you watched UFC on ESPN3 live and in person. Yes, I did. Had the opportunity to interact with several co-maniacs while I was out there. Especially, I appreciate the people who just yelled at me from afar, Ben Folks, are you fucking kidding me? Nice. And then I had to hope that people under around me understood that it wasn't people angry with me or expressing just like an incredulous disbelief yeah. at things I had done, but that like we were we were bros. Catchphrase. Yeah. But it's hard to you just can't like look around at strangers and be like, "Don't worry about it." It's catchphrase. It's a catchphrase thing. You wouldn't understand. It would be like if you were Steve Austin and people yelled, "Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass," right? It's a little different. It's a little different. Yeah. But it's on the same path. How long had it been for you since you took in a UFC event live and in person? Man, I don't know. I know the last a while event, like a last event of any kind I covered was that bare knuckle event like last June. So, man, it's been a few years probably since I've been to a UFC event. Had anything changed? Not really. It's the same basic idea. I would say... Yeah, they still get guys together in the cage, yeah, stripped to the still, waist to fight. stripped to the waist. Unarmed mi- hand-to-hand combat. Mixed rules fighting. Uh, they did seem to have a few more in-arena video packages that just don't make it to air, but are like, you know, thanking fans, like a montage of fighters thanking fans. So I was like, okay, that's a nice touch. Stuff like that. It's a different experience to go... And not have to worry about just churning out tons of content while you're there, though. Yeah. To to have an employer like The Athletic where I'm just, I'm watching, I'm paying attention, I'm, you know, talking to people where I can, that kind of stuff. But I'm not having to produce, like, six different stories in the course of fight night. That was pleasant. I felt like I walked away being like, I feel like I actually watched those fights. Like, I didn't know what happened. Imagine that. Yeah. Uh, I hope they're not still playing the same DJ mixes. Uh, I got some bad news for you. Are they really? The yeah. like uh, heavy metal rap mashup stuff? It's not exactly the same, but yes. It, and that's I made a comment about it in our live like open discussion thread on The Athletic during the fight. Because at one point, it's like, we're listening to a Beatles song, man. We're listening to Come Together by the Beatles. Oh, yeah. I remember this one. And it's just, you have to try to like imagine the audacity of the DJ who's like, you know what the Beatles really need? Me to fuck around with the tempo and, and the beats. Yeah. That'll really improve the Beatles. I should, like the I should lay some band. DMX on here or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. So if you're hoping for that part of the experience to change. I mean, I thought that they might freshen it up a little bit. It sounds like they're still throwing the same CD on. Because back in the day when we used to attend UFC events regularly, it definitely got to the point where you're sitting cage side, usually before the fights or some kind of televised lull. And yes. like, you go like, okay, yeah, this, now they're playing this song. I remember when they played this song two weeks ago up there in Milwaukee. Yeah. They still do the, uh, what's the song where everybody's hands go up and they stay there. That song, you yeah. know, the one it's, they stay there. Sounds familiar. They stay there. It's reminiscent. They of stay there. Many songs. Yeah. They still do that one at pretty much every event. I did not hear 
the one that really drove me crazy, like the techno remix of Hotel California. Uh-huh. Yeah. Didn't hear that one this time. So maybe that one has finally been retired. Good stuff. But the genre is basically the same. Nice. What about Bob O'Reilly? Yeah. He's still throwing that still on? Still doing Bob O'Reilly. Right before we go live on the air? Yep. Well, Ben, the, uh, we got some announcements for the Co-Maniacs. First and foremost, voting for this week's Patreon Movie Club, Razor Thin, yeah. right up till the wire. But I am regretful to announce that your pick, Locke, starring Tom Hardy, won the day. That's right. So we'll be watching Locke and talking about that for the co-main event podcast, Patreon Movie Club, on Wednesday. That's right. Again, Locke, L-O-C-K-E. L-O-C-K-E. Starring Tom Hardy. Here's what I'll say about it before people head in to watch it, assuming they haven't already done so. Give it a chance. Whoa, we're apologizing already? No, nobody's apologizing for shit. We haven't even shit. watched it and I'm, you're already apologizing. I'm just saying, when I watched it the first time, it was basically just, okay, here's a Tom Hardy movie I've never heard of. It's on Netflix. And I started watching it. And there's a point like 10 minutes in where I'm like, wait a minute. Is this whole thing going to be like this? And then you get to a point where you're like, I really appreciate that this whole thing was like this. It worked somehow even though it's basically a play. It's basically like a one-man play. And yet, I think it mostly works. That is a thing we'll have a chance to talk about on Wednesday for the CME Movie Club, but you gotta give it a chance and roll with it. That's all I'm saying. Sounds like an apology. I'll tell you what, though. Sounds like a pre-apology for Locke. This actually happened. I was in the hotel room uh, in Minneapolis, working, doing my stuff, had the TV on kind of in the background, and I realized, without quite knowing it at first, that I was watching the original Fast and the Furious movie because it's always on, like USA or some bullshit. It's always on some cable network. Chad, I was trying at some point to figure out who was the worst actor in Fast and the Furious. And I couldn't do it. You know why? Because the answer is all of them. They are all the worst actor in the movie. It sounds to me like as you watched it, slowly a feeling of regret that you had chosen Locke to go up against it crept over you. As you began to grapple with the greatness, let's say, of Fast and Furious. You haven't seen it. That's that, true. <laughs> that's what you said when you offered it up. Still, we're watching Locke. We'll talk about it on Wednesday for the Movie Club, which we record right after the Wednesday live chat, which is available to all patrons of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be fully back on our, on our schedule this week. We believe there will be a power hour on Friday. And then, of course, Saturday with UFC 239, Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon Fight Party. Up at Ben Folks's house. We'll That's both right. be there watching the uh, star-studded UFC 239 card and streaming that shit live uh, for 5 and $10 patrons. Sounds to me like what you're saying is that there has never been a better time to get on board with the co-main event podcast Patreon. That's patreon.com slash co-main event. Because not only do you get access to all this great content that is otherwise unavailable to just the regular free listener, you also get a chance to support Two hardworking guys just sitting here talking into microphones. Yep. Not giving your money to some evil corporation. Not giving some money to some fat cats who would come in here and fetter the discourse. Instead, you support this here very podcast. And for that, we love you. And we'll do anything for you on either side of the law. Wow. That's a promise. No, that's... Chad Dundas will come pick you up after you have murdered someone in the dead of night. Nope, not and doing that. And as, as you are shaking, trembling in the passenger seat, staring at the blood on your hands, Chad will just tell you, look, we're going to fix this like it never happened. And that's when you'll know it was a good idea to get down with a Patreon. 
Uh, if you need anybody to come pick you up for any reason in the middle of the night, I'm not the guy to call. Because uh, you've been asleep since 8.30? Exactly. <laughs> well, you should go over to patreon.com slash event, join the team today. You can get in on all this great content. Remember, if you want to support the show in other ways, Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts and Dundasso t-shirts are available on demand all the time whenever you want them over at cottonbureau.com. Just go over to cottonbureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from our friend, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element, facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And again, that's the word the with an A, The Fifth Element. The. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, see, you'd think don't turn your back on Francis Ngannou would be one of those unspoken rules we all just sort of take for granted. But here we are. Having to say it out loud. And in round number two, Amanda Nunes may have solidified her place as the greatest women's MMA fighter of all time, but historically, that's a dangerous place to be when headed into a fight against Holly Holm. And in round number three, for Tiago Santos, it's Red White and Fight John Jones Week. Yay! Yay! All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dabo Sweeney, who I believe is the head coach of the Clemson Tigers. Okay. But I'm not sure. Good to hear from him. I might have to fact check that. Anyway, old Dabo writes, I like Joey two times, Joey two times. After disposing of Formiga, he called out Henry Cejudo, the champ champ, the champ champ. See what he's doing Yeah, I get it. But will the UFC let the flyweights stay around long enough to make that fight happen, make that fight happen? Wow, really committed to the gimmick here. Yeah, well, I appreciate they call him Joey two times, Joey two times. Uh, I could only imagine how baffled people must have been who didn't either didn't see Goodfellas, which, first of all, what the hell is your problem? Yeah, get on, get on with that. Also, though, maybe people who, maybe they saw it once, like when it was in theaters, or they saw it once when it was on TV, and they somehow missed the incredibly minor character of Billy two times or whatever the guy's name was, Frankie two times maybe, which appears just for he's on screen for like four seconds iconic d- doing his thing iconic character and yet two times a very popular cultural reference joe benavidez actually showed up at the pre- post-fight press conference and by press conference i mean there were like five media people there and three fighters in total and nobody else came back there to talk to us so it wasn't like a grand affair exactly but he showed up back there and when i asked him about the joey two times thing and basically my question was did you feel like you needed a gimmick? Like you needed something to force Henry Cejudo to respond to you, to deal with you, rather than him just kind of ignoring it and being like, I got my eyes on Dom Cruz and Cody Garbrandt or whatever. And he initially apologized for it. He was like, oh, I know that was kind of corny. I'm sorry. And I was like, don't you dare. Don't you dare apologize for that. Because that works for me. Yeah. Like, you got to have something, right? Yeah, I yeah, thought Joey I mean, two times was okay. It has a basis. Like he pointed out, he's like, that time when, uh, I can't remember which dude it was, like, where he had to beat him twice in one fight. Yeah. And then like, he said one of his coaches was like, oh, you're, you're, you're Joey two times. And then it's like, how many other people he's beaten twice? Henry Cejudo, he's beaten once. Seems like, yeah, if you're going to be Joey two times, you got to get Cejudo back in that cage. I feel like, man, this, this checks a lot of boxes for me. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was too bad, especially for a guy like uh, Joe Benavidez, who's been super good for a long time. But at the same time, is maybe a guy that hasn't been 
hasn't had that top of mind awareness for a while as Demetrius Johnson and Henry Cejudo and TJ Dillashaw all kind of sorted out all of their business uh, at the 125 pound division. And in fact, Juicy Formiga is now a guy that Joey two times has beat right. two times. And let's just say Joe B, he went out there and basically handled Juicy Formiga, except for, you know, getting that inadvertent thumb in the eye that cut him kind of above or next to, I believe it was his left eye. And it seemed to trouble Joe a little bit, but at the same time, he was really kind of all over Formiga here en route to the second round TKO. Did you notice that the blood is bothering him a little bit and then the cut man got in there and totally stopped it? Wasn't an issue in round two. I will have more on that and assorted business this week over at The Athletic. But yeah, the question, is the UFC going to let the flyweight stick around long enough to make that fight happen, make that fight happen? I, if we're not going to do that or at least have that possibility open, then what are we doing here? with like a flyweight co-main event. And yeah. Either put the division out of its misery or let's go on with it. And the UFC keeps saying it's going to go on with it. So I guess we have to act as if that's what's happening. And if you tell me Henry Cejudo versus Joe Benavides, I'm like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah, I'd watch the shit out of that. Especially watching Joe Benavides, I really got an appreciation for him in this fight, especially because he can just threaten you with so much yeah. simultaneously. Just there's so much stuff he throws at you just constantly yes. that you have to worry about. And the thing, he made the comment afterwards about like his scrambling ability. I was kind of taking note of it during the fight. He just never stops and accepts a bad position in, in any kind of scrambling. You can never get him to just be like, okay, uh, this is the best I'm going to get from here. He's just going to keep scrambling until he's where he wants to be. And he was saying he looks for the opportunity for these scrambles just because he knows... The other guy's going to get tired before I get tired. And it becomes like a weapon. Like getting us into this kind of like chaotic spin cycle on the ground where we're both trying to get a, a better position is a good way for me to tire other people out. Now going up against a guy like Henry Cejudo, you know, knows a little something about the wrestling. Knows a little something about scrambling himself. Yeah, I'm interested to see how J Joe Benavides will do against this version of Henry Cejudo. Yeah, and Benavides is a guy who has been, like I said, really, really good for a long time. Uh, he lost... That split decision to Sergio Pettis at UFC 225 in June of last year. And other than that, the guy's career losses are two to Demetrius Johnson and two to Dominic Cruz back in the days when Cruz was kind of at the top of his game. So again, he's one of these guys that could be the best in the world if not for a, a historically dominant presence like Demetrius Johnson. Yeah. So yeah, man, I would be super interested to see him fight Henry Cejudo if they are going to let Henry Cejudo continue on being the, the champ champ. That would be uh, ideal as far as I'm concerned. Of course, now we got to we gotta deal with this injury, with the, the surgery that Henry Cejudo just had reportedly going to keep him out for the rest of the year. So who knows what's going to happen there? Is this an instance where maybe not having any flyweights kind of works in Joe Benavides' favor here. Right. There's and no he, pressure for him to like take another fight. Right. Before Henry Cejudo gets back. I, I say no pressure except for maybe how the bank account is doing. Yeah, he didn't seem too worried about that. He said he'd wait and that if he had to wait six months that he does not consider that to be out of the question at all. He also said that when somebody asked him earlier in the week, would you be up for an interim title fight if Henry Cejudo is going to be out for a long time? And, and he correctly, I thought, pointed out what would you even make as a flyweight interim title fight? It would be this fight. It would have been the Benavidez and Formiga fight because yeah. what else? who else makes sense at this point? 
Next question this week comes to us from Trevor Finch, who writes, Watching UFC fight night and enjoying an early fight when Drew Dober KOs Reyes in the first round. What does he do? Go straight to the center of the octagon and takes a knee to wait to see if Reyes is okay. Amazing amounts of respects for the man and the sport after such a violent finish. I see you, Drew Dober. You're becoming one of my guys. Anywhere, where does this kind of fighter fit in with the era of the UFC? Now, this is something that I wrote about in the uh, post-fight musings of UFC on ESPN3 over at The Athletic. Uh, Drew Dober has the fists of a terrifying murderer and the smile of a male cheerleader. Yes, he does. He's just out there. I couldn't believe how kind of grinning and he just radiated positivity. Positive, positive in, upbeat. In his, in his post-fight interview after he had gone out there and done really, really violent shit to Marco Polo Reyes. First round TKO, a minute and seven seconds. Yeah, that was a bad one too. And did he showed a lot of class when Reyes appeared to twist his knee. After kind of getting knocked out, uh, Dober did, you know, a lot of sportsmanship there. He seems like a, a likable fellow. Yeah. Although also, where does he fit in today's USC? It seems like guys like this, it's too easy for them to kind of melt back into the mass a little bit. Right. Because... Especially in this division. Yeah. Well, because you know, we've talked before about other fighters where you're like, man, why isn't this guy a thing? Gregor Gillespie, like, good example and that's someone who's been just like more successful in terms of wins and losses. But even a guy like Drew Dober, exciting, brings a, a ton of positive energy. He's a guy that seems like you could have no problem supporting. And then it's like he'll fight and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this guy. He'll go out there, have a good performance. And then you'll forget about him for like three months until he shows back up again. Yeah. It's just hard with the schedule being what it is to keep the attention on anybody like that, especially if they're not already a star. Yeah, and uh, Drew Dober is 6-2 and two in his last eight fights, but he did just lose to Benil Dariush in March of this year. Uh, all three of his most recent losses dating back to 2015 are by submission. He got uh, guillotine choked by Efren Escudero. He got rear naked choked by Oliver Abin Massier. And uh, he got tri- a triangle armbar by Benil Dariush. So uh, if you're looking for the, the chink in the armor there, if you're looking for the weakness... That's the glaring one. And like he's in this division where if you don't run off like five wins in a row, like we're basically not listening. Yeah. And in some ways, it's a credit to the ridiculous uh, embarrassment of riches that the UFC's roster is. That dudes like Drew Dober show up uh, on the main card of this event and knock out Marco Reyes in, in a minute and seven seconds and acts awesome on the mic after. And we're all kind of, we have to be like, oh yeah, I remember this guy now. Yeah. yeah. And you got to think, if he were in Bellator right now, maybe they could do some more business with him. Maybe so. Next question this week comes to us from Anthony Weiner. Okay. Disgraced former... American politician. Congressman. He writes, Alonzo Menafield, one, looks good getting off the bus, and two, throws them bungalows. Is he going to be, quote, a guy? Okay. I mean, going out there and, and just uh, starching Paul Craig in the first round after Craig tried to... A pretty inadvisable spinning back kick. Yeah. Went to the well one too many times. There, it looked like. Uh, I mean, this this is this is the kind of performance from a guy like Alonzo Menafield, who I believe uh, came off the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series. This is his second fight in the UFC, second straight first round TKO in the UFC. His first one was over uh, Venetius Marrera, who was the guy Eric Anders knocked out at this 
UFC on ESPN card. But this, these are the kind of, you know, Alonzo Menafield now has put together these two stoppages. He looks good getting off the bus. Definitely looks like he knows where they keep the weights. These are the kind of performances that, yeah, man, especially at light heavyweight, kind of leave you wanting to see more of this guy. Who out there told Paul Craig, you know how we're going to win this fight? Spinning kicks. That's the key here. It's, like, it's with the it's what Alonzo Menafield will least expect. Yeah, he will he'll never think that you're going to go out there and try to spin spin kick him because it would just be such a terrible idea. He'll never see it coming. Yeah, I thought. I mean, the the game plan for Paul Craig I thought should have been pretty clear. Uh, lose for most of the fight, get it into the third round where you're down on scorecards and about two minutes away from losing a decision, and then you got him right where you want him. Then you snatch up a triangle choke or some shit off your back in the last minute. What I, did we not understand the formula there? You know what's kind of amazing about uh, Paul Craig? Fifteen professional MMA fights, never, never been the, to the distance, never been to decision. He's come so damn close. That's a, that's actually amazing. To yeah, me. Out, up before this fight, his last three fights all finished in the last minute of the third round. He's two and one over that three fight stretch, but never been to decision. Has Paul Craig? It's your useless fact of the day here on the co-main event podcast. Yeah. Next question this week comes from George Bush. Okay. But spelled George like George St. Pierre. George S. George S. Bush. Glad we're all having fun today. You know? I didn't even Google Trevor Finch. I don't even know if that's a real name or if it's a a professional cricketer. Cricketeer. Gotta be somebody who's huge in snooker, I'm sure. He writes... Chad, because I know Ben's answer will be a big no. Okay. Is it time for Damian Mai to hang up the gloves? How sure, dare you? He got the majority decision win this past weekend, but that was probably the most uninspiring victory I've seen from him in recent memory. He looked flat. Now, see, I came away with the exact opposite opinion, even though, I mean, Damian Mai is out there doing Damian Maya. First round, incredibly dangerous. Second round, moderately dangerous. Third round, he's up 2-0. He's clinging to the cliff by his fingernails, hanging on for dear life to get this decision win. I came away from this thing being like, Damian Maya could do this till he's 65. Like, he's just out there being Damian Maya every second of the day. I don't even think he has to train for this shit, man. Just come in there and be 41-year-old dangerous-ass Damian Maya. You listen to me, George Bush. If, in fact, that is your real name. How dare you? How dare you talk about Demian Maya second all-time, in sole possession of second place all-time on the UFC wins record? He's only two behind Donald Cerrone. And you want him to quit? You want him to quit now? I mean, okay, he should probably quit relatively soon, just because you're going to get to a point when the UFC is... Like, they were not really doing Demian Maia a whole lot of favors with this matchup, necessarily. It felt like the UFC was going, okay, let's see if Anthony Rocco Martin is going to become a thing. Yeah, it was a litmus test fight for the former Tony Martin, the current Anthony Rocco Martin. Right. And, man, I felt bad for him, honestly, because he was talking before this fight about how this was going to be the fight that helped him determine if he could be a champion. And not that he was going to quit if he couldn't win this fight, but that... He saw it as a huge test and a very important one that he had to pass. And it's not like he got thumped or anything. It was just he got controlled, taken down and controlled in those first two rounds. And he had to finish it in the third and he couldn't do it. And yet when he walked out of there, I mean, he knew he lost. And he walked out of there and he looked like he was doing his best to hold back the tears until he could get out of public view. And you could just 
feel how absolutely gutted he was to have lost that fight. Yeah, there was a you could see it on the the broadcast. I don't know if you saw it live, but like in the second round, Demi and Mai took him down for the second time in that round up against the cage, and Anthony Rocco Martin looked over at his corner like seriously like or he was like what should i basically like looked at them like any help what should i do here like what's what could, what do you guys got for me and i know people are going to criticize demi and my effort being not the most exciting fight to watch and i i understand that but also you have to understand you take a guy down in that situation especially like in that second round and he's controlling him he's doing all this stuff and Anthony Rocco Martin is in that position just trying not to lose, just trying not to get submitted, trying not to let it get any worse. And he's kind of just trying to hold on and stall there. So if we're going to criticize people for a lack of action, we have to spread it around a little bit. Like he could have taken some chances to try to get back up more or try to try to force more of a scramble. But he didn't want to do that because you can't afford to do that against Demian Maia. And everybody knows that. And you're right, though, that his style... There are certain people out there who are going to be terrible style matchups for him. Like, anytime you get a wrestler, like a good wrestler, who has good enough hands that he doesn't need to take people down to beat them, like he can beat, because Demi Maia, not a great striker, has reached the point in his career where he kind of can admit to himself that he's not a great striker, that he he uses his boxing just to get to where he wants to be to take you down, for the, get his jujitsu game going. And if you get him up against somebody like Tyron Woodley or, you know, uh, somebody like Kamaru Usman or somebody like that, where yeah. it's like, they don't need to take you down and you can't take them down. So then what? Yeah. And then they end up being not fun fights to watch and he's going to lose those fights. Somebody mentioned the possibility of him against somebody like Ben Askren. And I was like, hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah, because Ben Askren probably is going to take you down. Mm-hmm. Just he does not have it in his makeup as a person to be like, no, I'm scared to mess with that guy on the ground. Yeah. No, he's not. But there are some matchups you could make for Demi and Maya that to just completely kill any momentum he has if you want to do that. But also you could have him hang around as a welterweight gatekeeper and he could win four or five more fights in the UFC easily. Yeah, I agree. Reportedly he was kind of talking about retirement backstage at, at this event, saying that he wanted to fight Diego Sanchez next, which I think is an interesting idea. Uh, and especially for, for Demi and Maya to want to fight Diego Sanchez is an interesting idea. But I think his comment was... Definitely no fights after 2020. So Damian Maia is around for another year or so, year and a half. But it sounds like he's uh, he's working on, a, on an exit strategy here. I right. Guess. He's also coming to the end of the contract. I think he, he mentioned to me when I talked to him at, uh, before this, this fight that he wants to finish this contract and then kind of wait and see, uh, decide if he wants to keep going after that. And I think me, he might only have one or two fights left on it. Last question this week comes to us from Matt Webb, who writes, Don't look now, but his light heavyweight about to be back. The once golden division of the UFC has for a while now been in purgatory, or in the words of Mr. Dundas, just shut it the fuck down mode. However, seeing Luke Rockhold and Chris Weidman move up, rising stars like Johnny Walker, Alonzo Menafield, and Dom Reyes climbing the ranks, along with some dark horses like Corey Anderson and Anthony Smith waiting in the wings, is this division making small steps to its old glory? It seems like John Jones won't have to scurry up to heavyweight so fast. After he hammers the nail in the coffin of Tiago Mejeta Santos, John may look up and find many more fresh bodies to bury. Please discourse. I am cautiously optimistic, Ben, that we are uh, trending away from shut-it-down territory here yeah. at 205. Yeah, I would say cautiously optimistic is as far as I could go to, because there is some... Some signs of life. Yeah. There's some some signs that we have some young talent that's coming up. 
I still think the gap between the middle of the weight class and the very top of the weight class is pretty big. Like, I think it's just a huge drop-off there because of how insanely talented and like freakishly good the champion is. So that's always going to be an issue. But there is some like competitive action happening and like some like the thing that hasn't happened for a long time is fights that are kind of in the middle of the top ten that are competitive, fun fights to watch. Yeah. And yeah. now we ha- seems like we have that. We have quite a few guys there that you can kind of mix and match and have some fun with. Yeah, and we're, I think we're kind of waiting for guys like Johnny Walker and Dom Reyes, and I guess now we would, might add Al- Alonzo Menafield to that list, waiting to kind of see them pass the test to be considered elite and be considered in the in the orbit of John Jones even. And as we talked about on the show before, it seems smart for John Jones to fight and beat these guys as fast as he can, which might might be on the outskirts of his mind when he says he wants to stay busy this year and, and fight a bunch of times. And it's you can never tell with John Jones what he's going to do. But he's also starting to sound a little bit more amenable to heavyweight. Like he's starting to talk about it like that's a thing he's going to do at some point in the near future. So uh, it will be interesting to see what happens. Even with all of these kind of up-and-coming talents, it's hard to imagine a light heavyweight division without John Jones. And as enticing as it would be to see him go up to heavyweight, because I think there are a lot of uh, real interesting matchups for him up there at that weight class. 205 pounds without John Jones would need someone, not to necessarily fill his shoes, because I don't think you're going to be able to do that, but like somebody who's a bit of a lightning rod, or somebody who is somebody where we look at them and we think, this is a guy that I can't miss. Like I really want to see what he does in his upcoming fights. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that, you might see even more people think about uh, remaking themselves as light heavyweights if John Jones were to move to heavyweight. Yeah. And I think, I know what he's doing. You know, it's not like he was ever, I think, scared to go be a heavyweight, but I think he's he sees it as an opportunity to put the UFC over a barrel and be like, hey, you want me up there? You want me to change my weight class and, and do this thing that's going to be better for you? Pay me more money. Yeah. And it's smart. Like, he shouldn't just agree to go up there and take greater risks when he can just stay home and dominate this weight class kind of indefinitely unless the UFC is going to make it really worth your while. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning. Uh, to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast, stuff always happens, news always breaks. The newsletter itself is short, it's informative, we would love to tell you it's funny, and if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. And there was a time when Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez were the unquestioned class of the heavyweight division. In fact, there's about four years there, if you take from 2010 to about 2014, where Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos seemed like the archetype for the future of the UFC heavyweight. Yeah. You know, 240-pound guys, athletic, quick, skilled, seemingly were going to replace the behemoths like Brock Lesnar, Shane Carwin, guys like that. Hard to believe at this point that Francis Ngannou 
has taken both those guys out in under two minutes total in the last six months or so. Wow. When you put it like that, that is something. The big fella, the predator, Francis Ngannou, TKOs Junior Dos Santos in the first round in a minute and 11 seconds in the main event of UFC on ESPN3. It sounds like a cliche in this sport to say people are quote-unquote back. But at this point, after those back-to-back losses in 2018 that undermined Francis Ngannou's initial wave of momentum, this dude is back, right? Okay, yeah. Well, there's a Francis Ngannou thing at this point, right? Where you just come in there and from the word go, you're out there looking to knock somebody's damn head off. Yeah, there's no, seemingly no other plan, right? Right. Just one foot in front of the other coming at you until you fuck up long enough to put your head in punching range. And with as big a dude with as long arms as he has, punching range is almost everywhere in the cage. Yeah, the punching radius is wide. Right. And that he'll throw just from awkward angles. He'll throw from all over the place. And he doesn't even have to hit you that square and you're going to go down. Even experienced heavyweights are going to go down. And Junior Dos Santos was saying it kind of after this fight. It was really, I wrote about it on The Athletic. It was kind of heartbreaking a little bit because when Junior showed up, he was the first guy to be interviewed at the press conference afterwards. And you could tell, like, in asking him, like, okay, what happened? What did you want to do versus what actually happened out there? He would kind of drift into this thing where it was like he was talking to himself a little bit. Where he was like, you know, this was the plan. I just don't know why. Why throw that overhand right? And everybody's going, yeah, we were kind of wondering the same thing. Because, you know, he's doing okay. He's clearly trying to stay away from Francis Ngannou in the first, you know, 60 seconds of this fight. When they get into these range where normally Junior Dos Santos might plant his feet and just throw back. He was circling out of there. He didn't want to get into that battle. And then with Francis Ngannou just kind of continually coming at him, continually pressuring him, he kind of dove forward with that huge looping overhand right. And when it missed, he was all out of position with his back turned to Francis Ngannou. And that is a terrible place to be. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that's amazing about Francis Ngannou, and this is not going to seem like a brilliant point, but like this dude hits so hard. Yeah. He doesn't even really have to hit you to hit you. We saw it in the Cain Velasquez fight where he kind of clipped him with like a, a, a short punch as Velasquez was trying to close the distance to take him down. And the first time, or as I saw it happen live, it looked like Cain Velasquez had just twisted his knee on the takedown and kind of fallen down. And then you have to watch it in slow motion from a couple of different angles before you finally see like, oh yeah, Ngano did kind of uh, clip him a little bit with like a short punch. Same sort of true of this junior dos santos punch like it's definitely pinpoint like engano hit him right on the jaw from behind which put dos santos down on all fours and kind of spun his world out of control but at the same time it certainly wasn't the kind of like enormous blast punch that he hit alistair over him with in their fight back in 2017 it's just like all he has to do then again this sounds like a fighting cliche but he just sort of has to touch you and that's going to change your whole night yeah, And that just makes him unbelievably dangerous, especially when you consider his forward pressure, his aggressiveness, and as you said, like the distance, the sheer distance that he can cover uh, just because of his reach and he's such kind of like a tall, rangy guy. Right, and because, at least the way we've seen him in the last few fights, he has no fear about coming forward. He's just going to be right on you the yeah. entire time. And as Junior Dos Santos said, he's like, that's the thing about this guy is he just comes forward looking to throw all the time. And if you throw a punch and you miss or you're out of position, he's right there. Like you, Other people, 
if they have enough like concern for your power, you might get in a situation where if you throw and you come up short, especially, it's because they stayed out of range and yet they're not in the range to hit you back. And he doesn't seem to have that problem, especially you know, in that situation with Junior Dos Santos. The question, though, is now he's going to say, hey, I'm clearly the number one contender. I need that title shot. We, he kind of confronted Dana White about it afterwards. And he was like, don't, you don't you don't want to get confronted. No, 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 and you could tell. I don't know if you saw the video of it. I could see him having the conversation. We asked him about it afterwards, and then there was a video out of it where he was like talking to Dana White, and he was like, "Do I deserve it or not? Do I deserve the title shot or not?" And Dana White, I mean, kind of to his credit, instead of just being like, "Yeah, that's right, it's all you, big guy. We'll get you that title shot for sure," and then going to go back and like once he gets behind closed doors in the office, is going to figure out how to screw you, is telling him, like, okay, hey, yeah, no, that was a good win. We'll talk about it. But, like, there's another fight scheduled, and we have to see what happens there. Somebody could get hurt. The outcome could be inconclusive, or, you know, a lot of different things could happen. And, like, he was just kind of telling him that, like, yeah, you are in position to be the number one contender, but we don't know how that's going to go. The thing is, though, either way this goes, Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic, you get somebody coming out of that fight who knows his way around a takedown or two. You do, yeah. And as we saw with Francis Ngannou's fight against Stipe, that was a problem for him. Now, do you think that it's equally a problem regardless? Do you think he fares better against Daniel Cormier than he does against Stipe? I, yeah, I do, and I, but I don't necessarily have like a scientific reason to, to, to base that on, I guess. Smaller guy? He's just a smaller guy. We've seen DC get hit before. We saw him get turned around by Anthony Johnson. Uh, a time or two now Cormier is obviously as skilled as they come as tough as they come he knocked out Miocic with a punch in their fight he's a guy you never want to count out he's the damn champion for a reason but like if you're just talking about a, a sheer matchup of styles my inclination is to say that Nganu matches up better with Cormier than he does with Miocic and maybe part of that is that we already saw him fight Stipe Miocic at UFC 220, and it was kind of a disaster for Francis Ngannou. Uh, and, you know, clearly Cormier would have to close the distance and take him down, but maybe I just feel like, I don't know, like DC might have a more difficult time doing that with with being such a small, smaller guy. Because Ngannou's out here making Junior Dos Santos look kind of small. Like, I noticed when they faced off both at the weigh-in and then right before the fight when they are out there touching gloves, like, he's just the much, much bigger dude in this fight. And, of course, he's going to have that size advantage against Daniel Cormier. And you never want to count out Daniel Cormier. Like, he could absolutely go win this fight if there is a fight against Francis Ngannou. He might even be the favorite, for all I know. But at the same time, I don't know, man. I would probably... I I think that there's a good chance that Francis Ngannou could punch Daniel Cormier. And as we have seen a few times in a row now, that's all it takes. He just has to punch you one time. I mean... Daniel Cormier's wrestling game in MMA is well-suited to beat bigger people. Yeah. Because uh, he's not out there just... It's not like the George St. Pierre wrestling game where it's just blast doubles over and over again. He g- does a lot of stuff off of just an initial single-leg entry, and then he'll just chain stuff together from there, which gives him a good opportunity. And yet, you're right. Like Even if you get Francis Ngannou in a situation where you got him up against the cage, he's standing on one leg, he might just be able to throw one big ham hock in there and cause some trouble for you i guess i just wonder in general do you think that it's even possible for somebody who picked this sport up as late as he did and as somebody who as we talked about on the power hour just is picking up life as a sportsman and an athlete in general pretty late yeah and 
there's a huge gap to make up there in the wrestling game. Like, he didn't necessarily have to turn into a wrestler himself, but just to turn into a good enough defensive wrestler to be able to fend some of these guys off long enough to stay standing. Like, does he have to go into every fight being like, either I win in 75 seconds or whatever, or if they manage to stay upright after that and get in close enough for a takedown, I'm going to get screwed. Is it going to be like that forever, Francis Gano? Yeah. Do you think he can close some of those gaps? It's a real interesting question because the people around him definitely talk like his fight IQ is super high. And like, and clearly you see in this uh, Junior Dos Santos fight and in the Cain Velasquez fight that he has this ability to capitalize on openings when he sees them. Like, you know, he saw that Junior Dos Santos had his back turned and he punched him right exactly where he needed to punch him to knock him out. So the people who have been, or the people that I've talked to that are have been Francis Ngannou's coaches for a long time say that that is his best quality. Like, nothing, none of the physical traits that he brings to the cage. It's that he has this high fight IQ, it's that he can capitalize on openings, and it's that he picks stuff up really, really fast. Like, he's one of these guys where everyone says, you show him something one time and he's got it, basically. Or he comes to the gym and has a rough time with some aspect of the fight game the next time he's in there he's much much better at it he's never going to close the gap between himself and daniel cormier in wrestling he's never going to close the gap in wrestling between himself and stipe miocic can he get good enough to ward off a takedown or two to be able to land those strikes i don't think that seems out of the question yeah. just because he seems like he's been able to be ahead of the curve in a lot of in almost every instance, except for, you know, his fight against Miocic and then that kind of weird one against Derek Lewis. But it's the power, man. Like the power gives, makes the, uh, the degree of difficulty for his opponent so high and like the margin for error so slim that I, I kind of like his, he's definitely got a chance to beat anybody, right? Like I, and I kind of like his chances against DC and I would like to see him fight Miocic again, just because I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. Also, not to look too far into a hypothetical future, but do you ever get into a situation where Francis Ngannou is the UFC heavyweight champ and John Jones wants to go up a weight class? Name your price. I will pay that to watch that fight. Yeah. Well, and that, I think that one of the interesting questions here, in addition to that, is would does DC want those problems, and does <laughs> would John Jones want those problems? Right? Because if you're because DC has already kind of talked about. Maybe the Miocic fight is his last one. Yeah. We do think that a pay-per-view between Ngannou and, and Cormier would be a big seller. Would it be big enough to get Cormier to sign to have that fight? Or if you're Daniel Cormier and you manage to beat Stipe Miocic again, are you like, you know what? I'm good. Yeah. And at the same, the same thing goes for Jones. Like, Jones doesn't have to go to heavyweight. Jones versus Ngannou, it's a, probably a bigger pay-per-view than Cormier versus Ngannou. But at the same time... Do you, would you rather just stay at 205 pounds and fight the Tiago Santos of the world? Yeah, I mean, maybe some of that will help be determined by when you see the receipts from a fight like John Jones versus Tiago Santos. Yeah. Maybe, especially in the era where it's behind two paywalls, maybe this is, gets to be the time where you're going, okay, it's going to take something big to make a real huge difference on pay-per-view. Yeah. And to me, the other interesting question about Francis Ngannou, which we just talked about about the wrestling, is that I feel like the issue of you know his defensive wrestling or his ability to stop takedowns is kind of like the deciding factor of whether or not he's going to be a transformative figure in this weight class. Because you see these guys come along every so often. You know, Mark Coleman was a transformative figure in the heavyweight division. Randy Couture, 
uh, was sort of a transformative figure in mixed martial arts, brought a different uh, skill set to the cage, changed the way some people fight. Uh, and then you see like Brock Lesnar, a transformative figure. And, you know, all those guys were flawed. But for Francis Ngannou, it feels like he has the potential to be that kind of figure in the heavyweight division. And it all just kind of comes down to, can he stop the takedown? Because if he can't stop it, then he seems more like a flash in the pan. If he can stop it, maybe he's like an all caps guy. Yeah, I mean, even if you can't stop it, if you're Francis Ngannou, you still end up in some situations where they got to get there. Yeah, that's and true. it's a dangerous little zone to get. And you know, maybe you get in some fights where it's a coin flip, basically. And sometimes they're going to get in there and sometimes you're going to get them before they get there. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, did you see this in the news this week that uh, former UFC men's bantamweight TJ Dillashaw has opened a smoothie restaurant, yeah. a smoothie stop mm-hmm. over yep. there uh, in California. That's right. Did you happen to see uh, the name of it? Is it Clean Juice? Clean Juice is the name of <laughs> TJ Dillashaw's new smoothie restaurant. I don't know if you can call a smoothie shop a restaurant. Nope, I don't think you can. Smoothie shop, let's mm-hmm. say. Clean Juice. Are you fucking kidding me? Clean Juice. This dude was just plain doping. And then he's going to turn around, what, six months later and be like, let's start a, going to start a smoothie spot called Clean Juice. Come on, man. Workshop that shit. Just call it almost anything else. Hey, nobody wanted to step in there and offer some suggestions, I'm trying some to say edits. Maybe there's nobody to edit TJ Dillashaw at this point. Maybe we need to go Clean through. Clean Juice, it's Wait, called. How about we'll get like a, a legal pad. We'll write, we'll all write down five names, Okay. And then we'll just kind of go around. Clean juice can be one of your choices. And then we'll also see what other people come up with. And that maybe do not invite everyone to point and laugh at you. Dilla shake. What do you think? Perfect. Smoothie town. Even that is better than I mean, clean juice. You still got to come up with three more, but I, it's a formality at this point. Clean juice. Come on. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Chad, did you see the stoppage in this... Eric Anders, uh, Vinicius Moya fight. I did. I did. Looked like one of those guys owned the referee money. Referee Vance Swearden. Yep. He watches Eric Anders drop Vinicius Moreira, and dude's eyes are rolling back in his head. He's laying there unresponsive, and the referee is standing there in the position to witness it all, and is just like, eh, he I'm might see where this goes. He might get back in this yeah. one. I'm going I'm to let him get blasted straight on in the face like three more times super hard. Sees him go down almost unconscious, inco- unconscious basically. Circles around. He's like, you know what? I want to see where this goes. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'd say that, but I'd it's, like to see some more. It's an unconventional game plan, but I'm going to give the guy a chance to, to work his ground game here while he lays there with his arms limply at his sides. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Trying to get somebody killed out here? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, now we turn our attention to the next UFC event coming up this Saturday night in Las Vegas. Get yourself UFC 239. Now, as we'll talk about in the next round, the main event has John Jones and Tiago Santos, but the co-main event sees Amanda Nunes come up here against 
Holly Holmes, as she is known on the co-main event podcast. Here's my question to you. Is, is the lioness here in a position to claim the status as the greatest women's fighter of all time with a win here? Or does she already have it? Does this mean something other than just, you know, another title defense? I'm tempted to say she already has it. I mean, check the record, bud. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko, victory, UFC 196. Misha Tate, victory, UFC 200. Ronda Rousey, victory, UFC 207. Valentina Shevchenko again, victory, UFC 215. Raquel Pennington, okay, victory, UFC 224. Chris Cyborg, victory. Yeah, that's a big one. UFC 232. I mean, Holly Holm is really, really good, which I hope that we get the opportunity to talk about during this round. Uh, but I think Amanda Nunes is already there. She's already the greatest women's mixed martial artist that we have seen uh, thus far. And I think that that is part of the danger here. Because we've seen Holly Holm go out there and knock the goat out once. And Holly Holm is probably not going to be a person that we regard as the greatest of all time. I think we know the story of her career. Clearly, she's a wonderful athlete and a great fighter. At times, very frustrating to watch, but has never been able to put together uh, the sustained run of success that would have her on that list to be considered that. But she already knocked out Ronda Rousey kind of when Rousey was at the height of her powers. Now she gets the opportunity to fight Amanda Nunes when Nunes at the, at the height of her powers. If Holly Holm can win this, it doesn't, she doesn't absorb greatest of all time status away from Amanda Nunes, but like still that'd be a pretty cool thing. If you're a Holly huge Holm. win for her. Yeah. I was surprised to see the odds as one sided as they are that. Holm is like a two and a half to one underdog here, which I expected her to be the underdog. But it's not that hard for me to imagine a situation where just as a stylistic matchup, yeah. this favors her. Yes. Because as we've seen, like you said, she can be a frustrating person to watch when she's the one who has to go forward. Sometimes she just doesn't go forward enough and ends up coming up short with a lot of her strikes. And when other people, though, are the ones to be the aggressors, they sometimes walk right into trouble. Yeah. And when you look at how Amanda Nunes fights, she was often super aggressive, like going to get right up in your face and throw them bungalows yes. and try to really hurt you early on and very dangerous early on in a fight. Now, I mean, we've also seen her, I think, grow as a mixed martial artist to the point where we haven't seen her struggle with cardio issues late in a fight anymore. We've seen her be able to adapt a game plan and, and stick with it as a fight goes on. But also, I wouldn't be surprised if she goes out there and thinks, I'm going to come out and blitz Holly Holm. I'm going to put the heat on her early on. And maybe you get yourself in trouble that way because Holly Holm, as somebody who can hang back and counter you, is a really technically proficient striker. Yeah, it's a super interesting matchup of styles in that way because when Amanda Nunes is best, it's when she's out there pedal to the metal, uh, you know, putting the pressure on and eventually winning the day with her strikes. Holly Holm, as you just said, is best when people are doing exactly that, kind of heedlessly throwing themselves into the teeth of her very technical uh, boxing and kickboxing ability. And she struggles sometimes when she's the person who has to be the driver of the action. I would think Amanda Nunes would be hip to that game at this point, given that, you know, we've seen her be so successful. She comes from a high level camp. I would think that they would go out there and, 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 you know, send her out there with a game plan to kind of maybe be a little bit less aggressive than normal and see if you can make Holly Holm come to you. But at the same time, we have said it and said it about fighting. It has a way of revealing who you truly are. It might be hard for her to stick with that over a long period of time. 
I think Amanda Nunes is probably the way to bet here, but I'm also in, very intrigued to see how this thing goes because it, it, you know, just on the on the pure basis of their resumes, you'd think Nunes should win this, but this is the kind of fight where uh, where Holly Holm can excel. So I'm I'm really interested to see what happens if, when when this fight actually happens. Will she be the first person to go up, win a UFC title in a higher weight class, and then come down and defend the old belt that she had before? That is a great question. Probably yes. Doesn't like normally, seem... what we've seen happen is that when someone goes up and they become the champ, champ, that the lower weight belt gets taken away from them. Right. That's that's so, the one they never don't return to. Right. I'm not sure anyone has really even had that opportunity. I guess in theory, Henry Cejudo might have it now. But yeah, I think that's right. I think Amanda Nunes will be the first. I mean, Conor McGregor. Could have had the opportunity, chose not to do that, and yeah, I maybe if we we've talked about this before, if anybody is in a position to actually defend two belts, it could be a champion who was already holding it down in one division, and then there's another division where there's very little activity anyway. So it's not as if we anybody feels like you're holding up the action because it just doesn't happen often enough that there is a contender everybody gets super excited about. Could she actually be the first person to like really be a long-term defending in both divisions champ champ? Yeah, like if they let her do it, I think she absolutely could, especially since there's no real urgency to have her defend that women's featherweight title. It's not like they need to put that on the line every month. They don't even have enough fighters or contenders to really do that. So if Amanda Nunes is comfortable with it and she wants to mostly stay at 135 and whenever there is an intriguing matchup at 145, put that title on the line, I think that could totally work. Especially since, as we have talked about with Amanda Nunes, almost since her rise in the UFC... It feels like they could really promote her as something beyond how she is currently promoted. And I think in recent times, we've seen the UFC make some feints in that direction. The, uh, you know, they put out the, the pride t-shirts with the rainbow, we are all fighters uh, slogan on the front. We've seen uh, this past week, the Stephen A. Smith spot. That was you probably didn't see it, but it was on the broadcast of UFC ESPN three about John Jones and Amanda Nunes. It was kind of weird. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I thought it made 100 percent sense, but at least they are including Amanda Nunes in this conversation, saying like, "Hey, UFC 239 is about John Jones and Amanda Nunes. Like it's a it's a true co-main event type situation." So uh, yeah, man, I think it would be awesome if they figured out a way to have one of her things be that she's the greatest women's fighter of all time, and she's the champion in these two different weight classes. Well, yeah, and when you put them together on that card, then you have what could be the greatest male fighter of all time and the greatest female fighter of all time. Then, suddenly it has makings of what could be a special night. I do need to know I'm going to need Stephen A. Smith to convince me. That's who I think of when I think, tell me what the, the stakes are and the full historical context of this mixed martial arts event. Get Stephen A. on the horn. Yeah. It was the promo seemed to uh, the crux of the promo seemed to be that we were going to find out who the greatest of all time is at this uh, at this pay-per-view. And I was kind of like, I don't even know if that's at stake here. I don't even know if that's up for grabs. Like is beating Tiago Santos the thing that puts John Jones over the top? Yeah, like, no. I it's, no, I don't think so. Is beating Holly Holm the thing that puts Amanda Nunes over the top? Like be a nice win. Well, it'd be the last one, basically. Like that's, yeah. We've talked before. Like I think before when we were talking about Amanda Nunes, we made a mistake. Like I think listing off like people she's beat, and we added Holly Holmes to the list, and people pointed out, like, oh, no, she hasn't beat her yet. And it just feels like she has because it feels like she's beaten every other person to ever hold the women's band of white title. And when she beats Holly Holm, then she'll have you know hit through the cycle there, right? 
Yeah, like this. I think that she's the one that uh, she said that at this this past uh, media lunch or whatever they did the, the week or two ago. That like this that once she beats Holly Holm, she will basically have beaten all of the former champs that are even near to her weight. So I don't know, man. I think it's a it's a great fight. I think it's it's one that I, as I said, I'm super interested to see how it goes. Uh, and I think the stakes are high for both people. I just think that goat status has already kind of been sewn up. I'm not sure that that's what I would say is the selling point here. Maybe you could fuck it up here. You is could it? you could fuck it up, but that's not how they want to sell it. No, like, that's not, not how you want to sell the next yeah. pay-per-view. In any case, uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back for round number three. weekend the main event of ufc 239 over there at t-mobile arena in las vegas nevada john jones attempts to craft what is his 10th defense of a ufc light heavyweight title although just the second consecutive defense of his current ufc light heavyweight title he beat anthony smith at UFC 235 after uh, winning the vacant title from Alexander Gustafson at UFC 232. As I just said to you before we started recording this, a circuitous career for John Jones, yeah. to say the least. We had the news out this last week that Dana White and the UFC are apparently petitioning the Nevada State Athletic Commission to overturn Jones's only career loss, which came to Matt Hamill. 10 damn years ago at the Ultimate Fighter Heavyweights finale in December of 2009. So there's a lot of kind of stuff in the ether here about John Jones as we head into UFC 239. How do you even consider this guy's career at this point? Like clearly one of the greatest of all time, if not already the greatest of all time, had his title reigns interrupted by mistakes essentially of his own making. Is it simpler for you to think about John Jones as sort of like an uh, just an interrupted genius, or how do you look at the guy here headed into UFC 239? Uh, flawed genius, I guess. I think we talked before about how John Jones seemed to be just a prodigy at mixed martial arts, the kind of guy who has an ability that can make bad decisions turn out well, like the decision of oh, hey, I got to child on the way you know what i better do to support them take up a career in mixed martial arts yeah like drop out of school and really focus on mixed martial arts for almost everybody else on the planet no that's a terrible idea do not do that for john jones spectacular idea and there are a lot of things throughout his career that kind of line up that way even you know it's weird his name comes up all the time when you're talking to other fighters and coaches and stuff because they'll say like hey yeah like, I was talking to, to Demian Maya's manager and coach when I was in Minneapolis, and he was making the point that with almost everybody who becomes champion, there's an element of, if not luck, at least fortuitous timing and fortuitous matchups. And so he was like, oh, you know, you look at Tyron Woodley, you look at Bisping, you look at different people where it was like, okay, you got where you needed to be at the right time, and for other people, they didn't. And that's played a big role in you becoming champion. And he had to kind of add the caveat, you know, unless you're like a freak like John Jones, who was going to do it no matter what against no matter who you put him up against in there. And they're just like 
all the outside the cage stuff makes it so easy to distract from it, but there's just nobody else like that in the sport. Yeah, and he's one of these guys who, like, I think somebody like George St. Pierre, by the time they even got around to fight for the title for Jones, it was against uh, Shogun Hua, UFC 128 in March of 2011. By the time they even came around to fight for the title, there was this sense that they were the future of the division. And especially in today's UFC landscape, those kind of people are few and far between. Like, I can't even, I don't even know who you would consider in that realm at this point as someone where we look at them and they're sort of like the consensus pick to win the title and take the division forward as the new standard bearer. But John Jones was clearly that person, even by the time, you know, March of 2011 rolls around when he won the title and then he cracked off what I consider to be the greatest, you know, year and change in the history of mixed martial arts where he beat five former light heavyweight champions, uh, Shogun Hua, Rampage Jackson, Leota Machida, Rashad Evans, and Vitor Belfort, all of them in a row uh, leading up to UFC 152. So like, yeah, man, the guy's was ticketed for the top. He made good on that. We have not seen anybody be able to match his skills or his style in the cage up to this point. And that Matt Hamill loss clearly was a, was a technicality uh, back in 2009. I don't know that you can overturn it just because you think the rule is stupid. But at the same time, like we are, we are habitually waiting for someone who's going to be able to come along and like Give John Jones some problems. And, and along have, comes Tiago Santos. We have only seen it in really, really fleeting ways from uh, Daniel Cormier and Alexander Gustafson, respectively. And I don't know that there's a lot of thought that Tiago Santos is going to be that guy. But he hits hard. He does hit hard. And he could knock John Jones out with one punch. We just haven't seen anybody do that yet. We also, though, the thing that undercuts the puncher's chance as a marketing tool to sell a John Jones fight is that we just don't see him get hit very much. It's not like what we're waiting for is somebody with enough power to hurt John Jones. It's just that he does not put himself in situations where you even have a chance to lay hands on him that cleanly. And it's hard to look at how those two match up and feel like, okay, well, here's how Tiago Santos is going to do it. I mean, anybody can kind of walk into a punch, I guess. Anybody else can throw one out there and you get lucky and it lands right on the right spot. But the way John Jones fights is so smart and with so many different tools at his disposal, it's harder to sell us on the idea of like, well, hey, this guy can just go out there and swat him one good one right across the chin and that could be the whole night. And yeah. it's just like, no, man, I don't think you're ever going to get close enough. I think he's going to be kicking you in the knee and doing all kinds of weird shit to you. And the next thing you know, it's going to be three rounds in and you realize you're frustrated as hell and you have no path to victory. Yeah, I think that that clearly is the the way to bet. Just looking at John Jones's career right now, trying to figure out who the biggest puncher he's ever fought was. Like, it's probably going to be Tiago Santos. You, you know, like Alexander Gustafson, not necessarily known for his power. Anthony Smith is a, is a good striker, but he's sort of like a guy who will pick you apart and then knock you out. Uh... You know, Glover Tashira hits pretty hard. Vitor Belfort, obviously, uh, especially that 2012 version of Vitor Belfort. I know what you're saying. Uh, which, frankly, kind of seemed to be the, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of TRT. That, you know, Vitor Belfort showing up for that fight kind of seemed like it was the last straw for a lot of people. Uh, you know, Quinton Jackson, obviously a big puncher. Leoto Machida, a striker. But Tiago Santos is going to have the most natural power i would think of anyone that john jones has fought we just don't expect a guy as great as john jones to get caught with that shot and get knocked out i guess my question for you is let's say it happens 
Let's say John Jones gets knocked out cold by Tiago Santos in the main event of UFC 239, separated from his wits, sent on a one-way trip to the land of wind and ghosts. Is there any reason for celebration? Like, what is the feeling you will have if Tiago Santos knocks out John Jones and is the is the man to make Bones Jones look mortal? Well, then we'll have to run it back, right? Right, right. Like, if if that's like the the. Uh, I mean, I don't even know what, what our fondest wish is for this fight. But, like, the most surprising thing that could happen is if Tiago Santos knocks out John Jones. And isn't the, the immediate emotional response, oh, right? Because then we'll just got to do it again. Tiago Santos is a guy who doesn't have a huge profile in the sport. Like, we've already seen him be fallible on numerous occasions. Like, he's not, there's, there's no metric to say, like, well, he's better than or greater than John Jones. So, again, this seems like one of those fights where we're like, eh, John Jones just has to get through this one, and then we'll yeah. talk about something else. Well, maybe. I mean, some of it might depend on method of victory. Like, if he goes out there and just lands one clean right hand two minutes in and knocks out John Jones, then it'll be like, okay, we're going to make you prove it. We're going to make you do that one again. Like, you hit the half-court shot. Let's see if you can make it again. But, I don't know. In an alternate universe where he goes out there and just takes apart John Jones, like finishes him midway through the third round after dominating every moment of the fight, then I guess people would be like, wow, didn't see it coming. Yeah. Huge surprise. And maybe we don't have to see it again right away. Maybe the division could move on. We could try something else and let John Jones work his way back to a title shot, which those words even just sound insane coming out of my mouth. I don't even know how my brain allowed them to happen. So that's how, you know, far-fetched it seems for that scenario. It does seem like what we're doing here is John Jones said, hey, you guys, I was screwing up for a while there, couldn't get in there and show off my gifts as often as I would like. Now, bring me light heavyweights, whoever you got. Just bring me one after another, and I'm just going to chew them all up. And by the end of the year, I will have laid a pile of broken bodies at your feet as a testament to my own greatness. That seems like what we're in the process here. And the only way it really works is if he really does just blaze through all those guys. Yeah. When would you like to see John Jones move to heavyweight, if ever? Well, that depends. If he moves to heavyweight, does he ever come back? Like, mm-hmm. could he move to heavyweight? And then if, like... Three years from now, we end up sitting in a situation where Johnny Walker is the UFC light heavyweight champion and he has three title defenses and we're wondering who who could possibly be next for Johnny Walker. John Jones goes, all right, let me get on a juice cleanse. Let me... Uh, Go out to clean juice and yeah. get myself on some clean juice. Maybe not clean juice. Maybe any other place. Uh, maybe let me get on like some paleo shit, drop a few pounds, and I'll come back down there and, and reclaim the throne. Yeah. Or do we assume... No, he can come back. He can always pull okay. a Randy Couture, come back. Well, if he can come back, then I say after this one. Because what else are you dying to see right now? Right, there doesn't, it's not like there's another... And Tiago Santos isn't even like a big ticket, uh, highly touted, uh, highly anticipated opponent for John Jones. If I were... Like, I kind of want to see what happens with the current state of the strange brew up there at heavyweight, right? I want to see what happens with Steve Miocic, Daniel Cormier, Francis Ngannou... Like I would, you don't want John Jones fucking it up. Yeah. What if he cuts the line? What if he beats Tiago Santos and he's like, "DC, I'm coming for you again." Then aren't we all just? If you're Francis Ngannou, you got to be like, "Ah, shit!" Suddenly, I'm rooting real hard for Stipe Miocic here. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think he's gonna go up there eventually. I don't know if it'll be immediately following this fight, but you never know with a fella like John Jones. You really, I mean, and see, that's the other thing is 
he could be Tiago Santos and then uh, wind up in some kind of insider trading scandal pretty soon and have to sit out for a while. Yeah. Do you see that is the most likely thing that he would get in legal trouble for, right? Insider trading? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I heard he was going to take his Serious 7 and become a uh, a broker. Yeah. Going to get his broker's license. Because he always you never know when you're going to need a fallback. True. Fallback. And it's not going to be Uber driver if you're John Jones. That would be kind of awesome, though. Imagine if you got an Uber over there in the ABQ and John Jones was driving it. Yeah. You might yep. wait for another ride. Yep. I'm living dangerously. I'm going with John. I'm opening up Lyft and being like, who you guys got? <laughs> All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying, you know that Tim Kennedy is an old buddy of mine. Yeah. From the IFL days. Yeah. I like Tim. Uh, I think Tim is generally a good guy. Tim and I trade texts every once in a while. I've enjoyed my time knowing Tim. But Tim and I share different political beliefs Probably in many an ways. Statement, yeah. An understatement? Yeah. Uh, and so when I saw him tweet about uh, Megan Rapinoe, the, the, the U.S. women's national team, uh, you know, kneeling for the national anthem or not, not singing along in the national anthem, he, his, here's his tweet. I think it is tragic when one kneels during the national anthem. I believe they do it out of ignorance and privilege. I do know that every man and woman that wears the uniform with an American flag on their shoulder would willingly die protecting that person's right to do so. I'm just saying, tragic? You think, you think it's a tragedy when this happens? Somebody kneels during a song that is a tragedy? In what way could that possibly be tragic? I mean, it's like a them, them maybe expressing or choosing a method of expressing a belief that you disagree with. It's a long jump to get from there to an actual tragedy, especially when what t- people are typically protesting here is the poor treatment of others, often at the hands of law enforcement. So if we're going to talk about ignorance and privilege, I'm just saying. Just saying. It's not tragic, man. Ben, I don't know if you noticed this, but I heard that uh, Paul Felder, who's on this UFC on ESPN broadcast as one of the color commentators, I think they ran uh, Felder and Bisping, at this one, he recused himself yeah. from the broadcast booth I heard that. during uh, his teammate Jared Gordon's fight. Seems like, first of all, Jared Gordon, super popular with his teammates. Yes. Because as you were saying, Bilal Muhammad. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, awesome. Coaching, like, boisterously from the front row right. of this The ushers event. kept trying to get him to sit down and be quiet. And it was like, it wasn't going to happen. The people sitting behind him were just going to have to take this one on the chin. Because he was going to be coaching all the way through this one. So I guess I'm just saying good for good for Paul Felder. You know, I'd kind of like to see this uh, become more of a uh, of a commonplace thing. If you got if you have a, yeah. a rooting interest in the fight and you're on commentary, sure cues yourself, man. Just saying. Does it work the other way if you're like, I am known to be bitter enemies with this person? Because we've seen that, too. Like, should you could you recuse yourself in that situation as well? It's an interesting question. You'd probably have to recuse yourself from more fights, yes. probably, but yeah. I don't know. Jared Gordon, by the way, gets the win over Dan Murray or Dan Moret. Dan Moret, I think. Unanimous decision. Even the ushers were fist bumping with Bilal See, Muhammad. See, that's the thing. The they want Bilal one. Muhammad to sit down. Then once it's over, everybody's friends. Yeah, he won them over with his sheer enthusiasm. Well, yeah, it's hard to. It's hard to turn your back on that kind of enthusiasm. Anyway, I'm just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday, of course, for the live chat, followed by the next installment of the co-main event movie club, the Patreon movie club. And then, of course, closing out the week with the uh, power hour, as we normally do. 
Uh, then on the week from today, we'll be back to break down all the stuff that happens. Oh, don't, can't forget the fight party. Saturday no. night. Saturday night. Live from Ben Folks' basement. We'll couple, be having the fight party. A couple few soda pops. Let me tell you what. Now that the hot weather has hit, I have a feeling somebody's not going to be complaining so much about the cool basement. Yeah, these are my conditions. Yeah. These conditions are right in my wheelhouse. Just stay nice and comfortable down there now. So join us for that on Saturday night. And then, of course, we will be back Monday. For the co-main event podcast to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 239. Until then, we are done. We are through. We are out. How many batsmen do you think you guys have in Oh, uh, total batsmen? Yeah. Let's see, I know that they're the total batsmen or just Lego batsmen? Total batsmen.